So tonight we're going to go through Christ's intercession, the priestly work of Christ at God's right hand. Um, but first we're going to start with a passage. You know if you just go through Hebrews chapter 5 to chapter 10, you pretty much get the gist of Jesus being the high priest. But in chapter 5, starting in verse 13, it says, For when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you and multiply, I will multiply you. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil." where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Literally, this entire study you can do, Hebrews 5 to Hebrews 10. Just read. That's it. So, as we start, Christ... Supposed to be vocation. I misspelled that. We hang out, Pastor Jay, too long. <laughs> In his earthly ministry, he was a prophet, a priest, and a king. As a prophet, he proclaimed God. As a priest, he intercedes for his people. As a king, he governs, provides, and protects. Now, sidebar, gentlemen, that is what you are supposed to do when you have a wife. You're supposed to be the king, the priest, and the prophet of your household. Because we're supposed to love our wives like Christ loves the church. That's right. Christ loves the church. So it's a high standard. That's why you're supposed to be willing to lay down your life for your family. Interesting, isn't it? So those are the three offices that Christ held. His earthly ministry. Now, as the high priest, the intercession of Christ is the mediation, prayer, and advocacy for the people of God before the throne of God. Christ's mediation is essential to the Old Testament. By the way, if you don't want to take a lot of notes, you can always ask me for the PowerPoint and I can send it to you later. The priesthood of Israel is incomprehensible without it. The mediator is the representative of or advocate of the people, and God communicates with the people indirectly to the representative. Uh, this indirect relationship creates the possibility of mercy rather than judgment for sin. Being the priestly mediator is dangerous. See, the priest had to offer a sacrifice 
for his own sins and was in danger of ministering unworthily in Leviticus 10, 1 to 2. So when they went, the Day of Atonement, he went to the Holies of Holies, the high priest, and if he was unclean, meaning that he didn't had unrepentant sin or he was living a heinous lifestyle behind closed doors, whatever it was, you understood that he would be struck down immediately. They even put a rope around them so if they were struck down, they can pull them out because you don't want to go into the Holy of Holies. Interesting, isn't that? So to mediate for someone else is to put your own skin in the game on their behalf. It entails a willingness to suffer on behalf of people as their representative. This kind of reminds me when Stephen Furtick says, I am God Almighty. I do not subscribe to Stephen Furtick, not in any way. He's, Italians would call him Stunad. And Spanish people on Puerto Rican Colombia would say Bobo. I don't know what Filipinos would say, but he's... So for him to say something like that, he wouldn't be willing to sacrifice himself for the sins of the world. So we have to understand that we have a high priest that sacrificed himself for our sins so that those who put their faith in him shall have eternal life. He gave the ultimate sacrifice and was willing to suffer on our behalf. Like you think about it, he was scourged, crown of thorns put on his head, he was beaten, spit on, carried the cross, and then crucified. That's pretty rough. So the high priest, once a year, the high priest would enter the, holy, the most holy place and make atonement for himself and then the people, Leviticus chapter 16. This was his dangerous task during which he could be struck dead, which we just talked about, for his own sins and for the sins of Israel during which he was to bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart, Exodus 28, 29. Dangerous job. Now, Christ's priestly mediation intercession, he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We, signed, we just read that in Genesis 14, 18, and 20, Psalm 110, 4, and Hebrews chapter 7. Christ is without sin, and he lives forever, unlike the succession of the Levitical priests. Therefore, he does not need to continually make sacrifices for himself and the people, but rather his once-for-all offering of himself is his sacrifice. So this is why we do not have sacrifices currently. His sacrifice is perfect, Hebrews 7.25. Christ's intercessory ministry is continual application of his perfect sacrifice to all those who belong to him. Now Christ's intercession in his earthly ministry... If you look at Luke 22, 31 to 32, it says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. 
but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. See, in Luke here, we find him telling Peter that the night before Peter denied Christ, in context, Christ has just told Peter that he will deny him three times before the rooster crows. So we should understand Christ's intercession for Peter as meaning that his denial will not be, uh, will not be complete or permanent and that Christ's atonement will reach even like the big betrayal of Christ. See, Christ's high priestly prayer in John 17 acknowledges that Christ stood as the mediator for the disciples protecting them so that while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them in, is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. John 17, 12. In Christ's humanity was not shed like a garment in the ascension, but was exalted to the heavenly places is essential for the intercessory ministry. It was in the flesh that Christ made a perfect sacrifice for himself and for his people. It was by his still incarnate mediation and intercession in the throne room of God that this sacrifice is continuously applied to his people. And it is through this intercession that we receive perpetual cleansing and healing from sin. So now a question. What is Jesus doing at the right hand? At God's right hand? He's interceding for us. So to intercede, to interpose, to intervene or plead on behalf of another person. Imagine having someone intercede for you. In what way could we have someone intercede for us? With a judge. A lawyer. How many of you have been to court? Amen? No. <laughs> well, it's nice having someone intercede for you, right? Because you don't have to try to figure it out. If you look at that from a from a, a faith-based perspective with Christ, we don't have to figure all that out. We don't understand the amount of sin we have, um, amount of sin we've done. We don't understand how He can go through all that. We don't understand what it is to be perfect. We don't understand what it is to be at the right hand of God in His perfect abode and live sent down, live a humble life, and then die for sins that we did not commit. It's crazy, isn't it? Romans 8.34 says, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Therefore, in Hebrews 7.25 he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ's intercession consists of two things. 
interposing his blood and praying. See, those two act, these two activities come to this. Christ calls the attention of the Father to himself to keep the Father's gaze away from our sins. There are two Old Testament truths that anticipate Christ's intercession. The order of Melchizedek. We're not going to go through Melchizedek because scholars have been debating this forever. And there's so many different perspectives and so many different theories. And yeah, we're not going to do that. So that there should be a, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So the Lord has sworn and will not relent that you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110.4. So this passage probably made a little sense at the time, but there it was. It had to be fulfilled. So Melchizedek is a mysterious character to whom Abraham gave his tithe after a, spe a spectacular victory in Genesis 14, verse 20. The order of Melchizedek. The writer of Hebrew explains Jesus was that person in Hebrews chapter 7. Remember? Hebrews 5 to 10, you'll get all this. But as this uh, presented a problem. The priesthood came only from the tribe of Levi, and Jesus was of the tribe of Judah, Hebrews 7, 14. See, there's no problem here because Jesus fulfilled this role by ascending to God's right hand, and from there he became a priest in the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews 7, 17 to 22. The Levitical priesthood fulfilled. All that took place in ancient times was a shadow of the good things to come, Hebrews 10.1. See, the sacrifices of animals did not cleanse the consciousness, the conciseness of the worshipers in Hebrews 10.3. It was impossible for blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, Hebrews 10.4. Levitical priesthood fulfilled. Continued, Christ fulfilled the ceremonial law in two ways. He was the perfect lamb who shed his blood and then entered the most holy place with his own blood. Hebrews 9.12. Jesus fulfilled both of these. He died on the cross openly for all. He entered the most holy place by his own blood. See, behind this teaching lies the Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 16, Hebrews 9, 1 through 10, and the animal sacrificed openly on the altar. And the high priest took the blood behind the curtain and sprinkled it on the mercy seat in the most holy place. How many times do they usually sprinkle on the mercy seat? Anyone know? See in Numbers chapter 19, the red heifer. Seven times usually. Seven times. And I don't know if there's any connection for this, but I just thought it was interesting, an interesting observation that Jesus shed blood seven specific times. So he was scourged. That was one time. Crown of thorns, two. Right? Three and four. Hands. Five and six. Feet. And then he had a spear thrust into his side. Now, is there any significance? I don't know. I just thought it was interesting. And I read it in a commentary one time. I thought it was pretty interesting. So 
It's good to just observe text and try to compare, and, but you also don't want to over-mystify uh, certain texts or try to find a sim symbolism that's not really there. So, I digress. The intercession continues. The high priest, the higher than the heavens, in Hebrews 7.26, he does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's for this he did once for all when he offered up himself, Hebrews 7.27. This intercession, which applies to the atonement of Christ, is effectual for those who come to God through him, Hebrews 7.27. The high priest, uh, the, the priests in general, when they were going through sacrifices, they just started slaying animals. Do you know what sound a... Um, a lamb makes when it, it's. Does anyone know? What, do you know what, what it kind of reminds you of? Huh? A what? Screaming in pain, but it almost sounds like a. Huh? Yeah, it almost sounds like a screaming baby. It's, it's pretty nasty. So imagine you're slitting the throats of all the, or killing all these animals, what that does to you. So I, always, I was always fascinated with the Levitical priesthood because the amount of stuff they had to go through to be a priest was insane. But we can't spend too much time on that because we don't have that much time. <laughs> so the reign, the kingship of Christ at God's right hand. Pontius asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? John 18, 33. Jesus replied, my kingdom is not of this world. John 18, 36. Over the cross was written, the charge, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. John 19, 19. See, the truth is, he was born king of the Jews, Matthew 2, 2. His kingship was never recognized here on earth, John 19, 20 to 21. When the father said, sit at my right hand, it meant that Jesus was given the place of equal authority and power with the father. So every time someone says, Jesus never claimed to be God or he's not God, he's not equal to the father. Like, so I, I was unfortunately dealing with a um, Jehovah's Witness Greek scholar. That's fun. That's really fun. Right? See... They have the issue of Jesus being God. They deny his deity, right? He is absolutely God. He claimed to be God. He proved he was God. You have prophetic evidence. And we've gone through various prophetic evidence throughout this entire study. But the Father gave him equal authority. He has equal authority. He's at the right hand of the Father. See, it was then that he began his reign in heaven. It was recognized by the Holy Spirit and by those who led by the Spirit. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God had made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Acts 2.36. I wonder what they do with those passages. To those in the family, he is the almighty King Jesus. People often talk about Jesus as their friend. They tend to forget that he is king. 
We are to be obedient to God. We are supposed to be obedient to our king. And we are to imitate our king. See, therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. I think there's a book, Name Above All Names, by Alistair Begg. Wonderful book. Write it down. Buy it. Kindle. Go. <laughs> and name Jesus, every knee shall bow, and those in heaven, and those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, Philippians 2, 9 to 11. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God, Romans 14, 11. And those bow and confess now will one day reign with him, Revelation 5, 10. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet, 1 Corinthians 15, 25. For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, and you have made him, uh, made him to have dominion over the works of your hands, that you have put all things under his feet, Psalm 8, 5 to 6. Now, quoting this, the writer of Hebrews added, for in that he put all subjection under him, he left nothing that is not under him. And, but the writer took notice of the obvious, we do not yet see things put under him. So why is it so obvious? People still hate God and don't acknowledge his son. See, wars continue. There's over 40 different wars going on in the world right now. Suffering continues. Do you notice this is probably one of the biggest reasons why people deny Christ? It's not really a logical reason. It's, it's an emotional reason. Does anyone ever hear the story of Peter Templeton? He was Billy Graham's partner. Apparently he was more gifted than Billy Graham. He denied the faith because he saw a magazine cover of a woman, I want to say in Africa, that was holding a child because there was a, a drought and that child was dead. He couldn't process through that, the suffering. So I have a really short answer why there's suffering in the world. Ready? Look in the mirror. We give a lot of credit to the devil, but who are the ones that are sinning? This is why we need a mediator, an intercessor, and a high priest. So evil still thrives, right? People still die. See, Paul applies this phrase to Christ in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 27, 28, the author of Hebrews also quotes this psalm applying it to Jesus in Hebrews 2, 5 to 9. Both passages declare Jesus' ultimate lordship and reign, which will one day be fully realized in the world. So this stuff's supposed to happen. What does it mean that Christ must reign until God has put everything under his feet? 
You see, God is waiting for a particular day and hour, a predestined time. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, but my Father only. Matthew 24, 36. And Jesus is king over his chosen people who gladly submit to him. He will leave his present position, God's right hand, when destroying every rule and every authority and power, 1 Corinthians 15, 24. See, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death, 1 Corinthians 15, 26. And now when, it, when all things are made subject to him, and then the Son himself will also subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all, 1 Corinthians 15, 28. And this happens at Christ's second coming. He will appear the second time, Hebrews 9, 28. People look at Jesus as, you know, when people look at baby Jesus, they look at the nice Jesus. You guys ever see Talladega Nights? Yeah, you have um, Will Farrell. he's praying, right? And he's saying, oh, sweet baby Jesus, sweet baby Jesus, and then, I had a bet with Jay I lost. Jay has a partially photographic memory. Uh, <laughs> he remembered this one part, and the father says, well, he grew up. The, Jesus grew up. He was a man. And then the wife kind of agreed with that. Too many people in the world love the nativity scene because Jesus is a baby, right? People don't realize on the second coming what happens. What happens during the second coming? If you're pre-tribulation and you're a dispensationalist and pre-mill, you kind of see what happens, right? His second coming, he comes and slays bodies in a very nice way. I'm saying this in a nice way. He comes, he comes in judgment the second time. He's not coming to be the cute, cuddly, Jesus Christ, baby in the manger type of thing. We have to have a full understanding of, of Jesus Christ to have, and that's, that was the purpose of this entire study, to see who Jesus is from various perspectives. And I know Pastor Jay went over it last week, but his second coming is not happy for those people who are going to be judged. And I mean that people who are not believers in the great white throne judgment. A day will come when the whole world will recognize what, it is, what is true. Jesus will be seen as King of kings and Lord of lords. Revelation 19, 16. Behold, his coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so. Amen. Revelation 1, 7. This is the ultimate victory of the cross. So consistent intercession. intercession. See, imagine having an expert mechanic with you every car trip. An expert chef preparing every meal. Rob would love that for sushi. An expert team of doctors at every athletic competition. And an expert golf pro watching every single swing. Imagine having 
history's one and only savior and expert of solving your biggest and most worrisome problems as well as your little concerns working on your case at all times. So I, I mentioned this before. Prior um, to coming to faith, I was, uh, I was in finance. And people for success, to make more money, because the goal in finance is what? Make money. I know, rocket science, right? So guys used to spend literally over $1,000 for one hour just one hour of someone's time so they can be better or to make more money. We have free access to Jesus, yet we make excuses to make time for other things opposed to go to him. See, by faith, you don't have to imagine he exists at all. He lives. See, according to Hebrews 7.25, he is consistently interceding for you with the Father. And he allows you to come to him every single day, all day long. So you have an intercessor, always. And you have someone to literally run to and seek refuge in, always. Do you know one person in your life that fulfills those two roles? No. Yet, we do have a God that does that. He doesn't want us to wallow in our sin, not to carry around our burdens. It's all your decision. Trust Jesus. Gather all your mistakes and weaknesses and give it to him. Because he is the one interceding for us. Our conclusion... The atonement of Jesus on the cross was a vindication by the resurrection. His ascension prepared the way of his priestly intercession. The intercession of Jesus applies to the benefits of the bloodshed. And one day the whole world will see this. Now here are your two questions. Hebrews 7, 23-24. Who are the priests today? And what's left for us to do? Hebrews 7, 26 to 27. Break up the small groups.